Merry Christmas. I'd like to um, excuse the uh, children to Children's Church. Um, they can have a, a time uh, of their uh, own and appropriate lesson uh, for their age. And uh, they can enjoy their, their Christmas lesson as well. Um, let's start with the word of prayer. And, uh, and look into the word. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to worship you, to sing praises to you, and glorify you in your name. Uh, thank you for all that are here this morning that have come to worship you. Uh, we do pray for those who aren't with us, either because of travel or, or illness or infirmity, and we ask that you be with them and give them your grace. Um, be with us now uh, as we uh, look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to the last Sunday before Christmas, traditionally the last Sunday of Advent. We'll be looking uh, one more time at our Stranger series next week. Uh, kind of a short Advent season because of where Thanksgiving fell, so uh, we, we decided to add one more Sunday to it and, uh, and finish out the series. So our series has been Strangers in the Advent, and we see how strangers, um, how they've met God. More specifically, how God has called them to himself. Today we're going to look at the visit of the Magi in the Nativity story. Um, I think you're all familiar with it. Uh, when I was growing up, we had a little nativity set. It was probably hand-painted in Italy, I think, in the 40s or 50s. It was, for me, it was ancient. Um, it, and uh, we had, uh, you know, of course, the baby Jesus and uh, Joseph and a Mary and a cow. Um, and there was, because it was in a manger, a stable, uh, we had two shepherds with two sheep, one standing, one laying down, and a sheepdog, which was kind of this bizarre yellow color, did not look like a normal color for a dog. Uh, we had an angel, the angel's uh, feet had been broken off in antiquity, so we always had to hang it from the light by a piece of string, which kind of worked. Uh, and then we had three wise men and a camel. You can tell there were three wise men because they all carried little Lehman Marcus gift boxes. Um, and they had a camel. And uh, being, you know, a, a biblically centered and, and wise family, we always had the nativity set up on an end table by the Christmas tree. But the wise men were always on the piano on the other side of the room. So we, we have this, this preconceived, we've got a lot of ideas about what the nativity and the visit of the Magi look like. And I'd like to take some time today, just look at the real story. Look at the actual story of the wise men. This would have been really easy when Tim gave this to me that I could just stand up here and talk about all the stories and all the myths and all the legends, and we could just go through all that and chew up 40 minutes and, uh, and be done, and, and I'd feel really good about myself. We start in the real story, um, and it's, it's significant. We, we kind of skip over the first little phrase 
but it's the most important. Now, after Jesus was born. That's a tremendous statement. Understand, nothing at all has been preached. No doctrine has been said. Nothing has been declared by Christ. But the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus, is what sets all this in motion. This is the cause, and we see the effect. What happens is God calls man. And that's always the way it is. All of our strangers in our series have responded to God's call to seek him. God has always presented himself, and man has responded. All of the people that we've talked about have outside of the promised people of Israel. That's why we call them strangers. They're, they're not the promised people. They're not Israel. But going through the series, we always see God has always and consistently called strangers to himself. This is not exclusively a story of Israel. This is a story of God calling all the world to himself. The birth of Jesus is God's ultimate call to mankind. I, liked, I got the best one. <laughs> In the whole series, I got the best one because this is God's ultimate call, his global call to all mankind through all of history. To strangers. The next line, um, and we're not going to go line by line, just this helps me get warmed up and kind of limber. Um, was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Uh, this, um, the reign of Herod, that kind of gives us a chronological marking point. Jesus was born before the death of Herod the Great. Uh, so dates are kind of weird in old times because they don't have like a calendar from the Napa Auto Parts store uh, and you circle the day that um, Herod died. Uh, he probably died around 4 BC. Eh, don't, don't hold me down on that too hard, but that, that's an approximate date. But then that also means the exact date of Jesus' birth was not known. I can almost guarantee with confidence it was not December 25th, year 0 AD. We, we can just start there. We don't know the exact date. And, ultimate, and there's whole sermons on why it isn't December 25th and, and you don't travel in winter and things like that. But that's not the important part here. We can get buried in the details of Herod and his story and all that, but we need to go back to now after Jesus was born. This all happened. So it says, uh, and after Jesus was born, uh, days of Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So they're wise men. Uh, your Bible might have a footnote calling them magi. Uh, I'm sure that clears everything up for you. <laughs> um, so who are they? It says they're magi from the east. 
Daniel 2.48 says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise man of Babylon. So we have Daniel, a Hebrew, being put in charge of all the wise men, or magi, or magoi, the Hebrew, and yes, I slaughtered the pronunciation, um, being put over the wise men of Babylon. Was Babylon the only place that had wise men? Probably not. But we do have wise men with, would have had knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. Were they kings? I specifically asked Remy this week, don't sing We Three Kings. Because, you know, were they kings? Well, the song says so, but eh, not so much. Um, the tradition that the Magi were kings actually can be traced back as far as Tertullian, um, late first, early second century. So it is a very old legend of the wise men that they were kings. Um, but probably developed under the influence of Old Testament passages that say the ki that kings were going to come and worship the Messiah. Uh, Psalm 68, Psalm 72, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 60. All of these say that kings will come and worship the Messiah. So it's not a bad, it's not a bad thing to say. Uh, I'm not going to throw bagels at you in the back uh, after service if you say kings. Church tradition even tells us their names. We supposedly have Melchior, Caspar, and Balthasar. Okay. Um, not something I'd name my kids. Matt's appreciative of that. So legends say they were martyred when they returned home with the full and complete gospel and started preaching it. They were all martyred. Uh, they're they're uh, bones were preserved, and uh, uh, Pope Frederick had them moved to the church, the cathedral in Cologne, Germany, so where you can go and see the skulls of the three wise men. I'm sure there's a gift shop. You can, you can go check that out. But Matthew in the gospel writes simply and calls them wise men, and we truly only know that. That's sufficient. Because while this is their story, this is the story of strangers being called by God to come and bear witness to the birth of the Messiah. We talk about the strangers. We talk about the wise men. We talk about the magi. Don't forget, this is the story of Christ. This is the story of our Messiah coming to, to us. They say there was three of them. Why do they say three? Probably because there was three gifts. That way each one gets to hold the little box in the nativity scene. Um, well, they say there's three of them, but it was likely a large entourage. So even if there was three wise men, they would have attendants. They would have servants. They would have um, people to take care of the animals, people to cook, clean, set up the tents. You didn't just you know, go online and uh, plot out your course on Google Maps and, and make your reservations on the way. There was no hotels. 
There was, there was no place to stop and eat. So you had to bring all of that with you. So there was likely a large entourage. Uh, you're carrying valuable gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, this is kind of when the term highway robber started. So you would have guards. So we're talking a large entourage, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. The point is, these were wealthy. These gifts and the travel involved would be expensive. This is not a, a light, uh, inexpensive effort. Why travel so far? Why not just send an envoy? Uh, why not just mail a gift card? You know, Starbucks gift card, we're all good, right? This was important enough for them to go in person. They knew this was important. Now, if they were Magi from Babylon, let's just make that assumption just for the sake of argument, uh, that's 800 miles, 800 miles from Babylon to Bethlehem. That would take about 40 days of travel. So there's a substantial effort involved in coming to Bethlehem. Is this reasonable? Is this practical? Uh, a comparable visit by Eastern Magi to Nero in 66 AD is, looks very similar in, in type, in the bringing of the gifts and honoring and things like this. So that kind of gives us a, a probability for the story that this was not outside the norm for what would happen at the, the recognition of a king. Actually, it's exactly the kind of thing that would have happened. In that norm, being normal, we see something wonderful. Jesus is being recognized as a king. The same as Caesar or Pharaoh or king of Babylon. The difference here is they're coming to worship a child a small child. We come on to verse second, uh, the second verse, and the Magi come to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they, verse two says the Magi are asking, where's the king of the Jews who've been born? They came to Jerusalem because that's where they expected the king to be. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, right? And that's where you would go because that's where the king would be. They came because the king of the Jews was expected to be there. They traveled this great distance to honor a king. But who cared about the Jews? At this time, the Jewish people were despised. They were dishonored. They had unique and weird customs. They had unusual beliefs. There was a little bit of jealousy because they were, they were prosperous people. Um, but they were viewed as low, troublesome, and conquered. The king of the Jews was nobody. Why did they come all this way? It's remarkable that the Magi would trouble themselves so much to honor an infant king, but even more so a king of the Jews. 
Although they are the chosen people of God, they have historically been looked down upon by other nations. One of the, the exciting things I found in my, my research for this, there was a general expectation of a Messiah or a great man coming out of Judah. Not long after Jesus was born, the Roman historian uh, Suetonius wrote, there has spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tactius, another Roman historian of about the same time, wrote, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. There's an expectation that there is going to be a king ruling from Judea, from Israel, from Jerusalem. They say he's born the king of the Jews. It's a strange thing for a baby to be born a king. Um, no one said anything about Joseph. No one said anything about previous kings. No one sent this recognition, apparently, for Herod. When he became king, uh, we'll talk about Herod in a second, usually, if you were born into a royal family, you're a prince. You are a prince until the throne is available. Sometimes they take a very long time to be king. Look at the, uh, the British royal family. People are in line for the throne for, for decades, their entire life. But the point is, Jesus was not coronated. Man did not bestow on Jesus Christ the title of king. It was his. It has always been his. It says, we saw his star when it rose. That was their, their explanation, uh, the reason why they're there. So we talk about the star. Uh, there's different suggestions of the origin of this, this remarkable star. Some say it was a conjunction of planets. Saturn and Jupiter were aligned. Others suggest a supernova uh, in antiquity that the light struck the Earth at just the right moment, uh, which is miraculous. Some think it could be comets or it could be a specific, unique star or sign. It's important to note that this whatever it is, moved. It provided direction, and then it settled in one place. Whatever it was, it is significant because God met man in his own medium. One of the trades of wise men, of magi, is astronomy. These men were astrologers. They're looking to the sky, and God said, look over here. I'm going to show you something. Now follow it. What's more intriguing to an astronomer than a star that moves? God reached out to them and called our strangers in the way that they would respond. 
It's also in fulfillment, excuse me, fulfillment of Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And Jewish scholars always saw that as a messianic prediction. So a star was not um, uh, unexpected. Notice it says, we saw his star when it arose. They knew whose star it was. It wasn't, we saw something weird and we followed it here. They looked and says, this is the star of the king of the Jews. For me personally, that kind of makes it Babylonian wise men who had learned under Daniel from the Hebrew scriptures. But it's his star. The star was Christ's star. It's unique to the moment, and it's unique to the message. But its purpose is to call man to God. So then we get to King Herod. When, king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Herod troubled is a bad thing. You don't want this going on. Herod was constantly on guard against threats to his rule, um, especially from his own family. He assassinated many family members who he suspected of disloyalty. Him being troubled is completely in character. This is exactly what Herod would do. He was a bloody, violent ruler. As soon as he came to the throne, he began by annihilating the Sanhedrin. He slaughtered 300 court officers. He murdered his wife, then her mother, his eldest son, and two other sons. Augustus, the Roman emperor, said it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. It's an okay joke, but it works better in Greek because for in Greek, the word hus is the word for pig and huios is the word for son. So it's funnier in the original language. <laughs> uh, which is what I say about all my jokes. Um, th there was just this, this knowledge that being around Herod was a dangerous place to be. So Herod's troubled, and it says, and all Jerusalem with him. So when Herod got tr got, became troubled, people tended to die. So Jerusalem's troubled. Um, they rightly feared Herod. Imagine, uh, we've kind of elevated this from three guys in a camel. This is a royal entourage. This is a diplomatic envoy. This large group, and understand everybody's got all their stuff, so each person has their stuff that they have to bring and their animal to carry it and things like this. So there is this very large entourage entering Jerusalem, saying, where's this newborn king of the Jews? Herod's troubled, but people are looking at this, this large envoy and going, yeah, this is trouble. This is a big, big deal. But consider this as testimony to Jesus' greatness. Um, even as a young child, Spurgeon says, Jesus of Nazareth is so potent a factor in the world of mind that no sooner is he there in his utmost weakness, a now born king, than he begins to reign. 
Before he mounts the throne, friends bring him presents, and his enemies compass his death. All Jesus did was be born. And Herod's threatened. And men come to worship. So this part always kind of rattles me. Herod calls the chief priests and the scribes to say, what's all this about? What's going on? They come in, they're looking to worship the king of the Jews, and they went right past my palace. <laughs> they went up, they knocked on the door and go, yeah, we're looking for the king of the Jews, but not you. So he calls in all the chief priests, calls in the scribes, and he says, what are they talking about? Who are they talking about? And it appears in the recording of Matthew, they know right away who the Magi are talking about. This is the first contact religious leaders had with Jesus. Think about it. This is the first moment where Jewish leadership, religious leadership, knows the Messiah has come. The Messiah that has been promised for the entirety of the nation of Israel and beyond, the Messiah appears to be here now. From Micah 5.2, they understood that not only the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, but also that he would be a ruler. He would also be a shepherd. Um, the last part about being a shepherd is actually a reference or possibly just a simple allusion to 2 Samuel 5.2 from David's coronation. A ruler is strong. A ruler is stern. We use the term rule with a rod of iron or an iron fist or something like that. Being a ruler is a rigid, firm, stern attribute. But a shepherd is one who cares for his flock. A shepherd is the one who cares for those that are weaker and, more, and defenseless. It's interesting that the priests and the scribes would describe the Messiah this way. They seem to have a complete understanding of who the Messiah is. He's a king, but he's also a shepherd. But the part that bothers me is they didn't seem to get up and travel to Bethlehem and see their Messiah. How crazy is that? <laughs> Your Messiah has been born. You recognize that. All the signs are there. And you tell the stranger, yeah, it's over there somewhere, about six miles down the road. They understood the biblical information correctly. They knew the scripture, but they failed in application. They didn't apply biblical knowledge to their lives. They, took, they had biblical knowledge, but it didn't change their heart. They didn't hear the call that our strangers heard. They could tell where Christ was born, who he's promised to be, 
but they never went to worship him. They were indifferent altogether to Christ and his birth and his entry into this world. Salvation has come. And they went, eh. So the Magi has been watching the sky for signs. They knew when the special star had appeared um, because Herod summoned them secretly to learn what time the star had appeared. And he says, when you go to Bethlehem, search for the child, and when you found him, let me know. Bring me word so I can come and worship him also. So the Magi has been watching the skies for signs. They knew when the special star had appeared. Herod sends them on their way to Bethlehem to go find out where he is. The wise men's response to, to God's call to his son was the intent to worship. They came to recognize Jesus Christ as king. Herod's kind of playing the game, but we all know, because we've already read, Rich read the scripture for us, they're not, he's not interested in doing that. So they listened to the king, they went on their way. It says, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. This star, and this, uh, we, convergence of planets don't work this way. Supernovas don't work this way. Did God take Jupiter and Saturn and swing them around? Maybe. Did God move a supernova through the sky so it settled over where Jesus was staying? Maybe. Let's not get bogged down. It moved relative to the position of the people and directed them. That's really cool. It's awesome. We can go on and on and on. We can get out telescopes. We can show big pictures. But there's something bigger going on. When they saw the store, the star, they rejoiced exceeding, with exceeding joy. Why? Did they rejoice because this really cool star did something amazing? Did they kind of geek out? We're going to name something after ourselves. The star guided them to a specific point. They knew the star wasn't the thing. They knew the star was just a marker. A star was a pointer to what was amazing. And that's why they had great joy. God called them to meet his son. They had joy because they were about to meet the king. They had joy because ancient prophecy had been fulfilled in their lifetime. Again, what bothers me is they had this great joy and the chief priests weren't there with them. The people of Israel weren't worshiping their king. Verse 11 says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So some details. First thing, they went into the house. Jesus and his parents are living in a home now. 
Joseph didn't keep his family in a stable for two years. <laughs> they were living in a house somewhere. Um, although uh, from Nazareth, Joseph had, uh, had evidently stayed in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus. Uh, so they're living in a house in Bethlehem. And it says, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. So we notice here Jesus is called a young child, not an infant, not a baby. He's a young child. We also notice that against custom, the child is mentioned before his mother. You have a child, a young child who's mentioned before the parents. In normal, normal convention, you would mention the father, it's his house, the mother, and their child. But here, the child is mentioned first. What's going on here? I, again, let's, let's keep in our mind the picture. This isn't three men and a camel. This is a large diplomatic envoy. A large caravan comes into Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a tiny little town. This, this significantly grew the population of Bethlehem for a little while. This strained resources. And they came to one house with a star hanging over it. And they came in, and what did they do? They fell down, and they worshipped him. They opened treasures. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's common, especially in the East, that one would never appear before royalty without bringing gifts. You don't go before a king without bringing gifts. <laughs> um, if this is the Babylonian wise men, just follow me with that, okay? If it's Babylonian wise men, they are from outside the Roman Empire. This is truly a diplomatic mission from a nation, an empire, beyond the realm of that Bethlehem resides in. They didn't go to Rome. They only went to Jerusalem to get directions. They're in this little town of Bethlehem to see a young child. And what do they do when they see him? They fall down and worship him. That's appropriate for a king. It's right for a king. And they bring him gifts. Considering who these wise men believe the young Christ to be, it's not surprising that they brought lavish gifts. This ain't no Starbucks gift card. This is a big, expensive opulent gift. So um, I'm sure you've heard a lot of things. Frankincense is a resin. It's used ceremonially for an incense. Myrrh is a sap. It's also used as an incense, but it can also be used as a perfume. Um, and uh, it can also be uh, um, made into a, a tonic to be used as a stimulant. So um, so frankincense and myrrh were, were valuable. Uh, if you remember the story, 
of uh, the woman uh, breaking the uh, perfume on, uh, and anointing Jesus' feet. It was a very expensive perfume. If you go look at um, archaeological finds of sunken ships, they have, you know, you have an entire cargo ship full of um, urns with, with various resins and ointments and saps and perfumes. Uh, these things were important as, uh, as currency, as an item of trade. They were very valuable. And gold. Any questions? <laughs> it's wealth. They're bringing wealth to the king. And Isaiah 66, the second half of verse 6, says, All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Okay, so we'll do a little bit on Isaiah. Um, those of you in Bible study, don't listen because we're going to do this in a couple weeks. Um, the, the good news is the praises of the Lord. Think about that. Praising the Lord, you are proclaiming good news. That's kind of cool. Okay. They presented gifts to him. The gifts weren't presented to Mary. The gifts weren't presented to Joseph. But to Jesus, the king. Now, did the young child, Jesus, use these gifts? Did he spend these gifts? Um, we have Matt and Becca staying with us. Joseph and Benjamin, I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old running around my house. It scares me to death the thought of them playing with frankincense, and I don't even know really what it is. But So we're not going to let a child play with these or use them, anything like that. But his parents used them, and they probably used them for his care. Uh, there's many uh, people uh, putting out the theory that uh, Joseph used these gifts to finance the family's trip and then stay in Egypt. Um, that's uh, very possible, but then that kind of gives us an idea of the value because they, they stayed quite a while in Egypt. <laughs> if, if he couldn't work, they showed up as strangers in Egypt. This may have been what financed them for all their time in Egypt, and then their return trip back to, uh, to, Israel, to Israel. So God used these strangers in a wonderful way to provide for the king. It's kind of neat. We don't know the amount or the value of the gifts, but question yourself, what would you bring to the king? What would these wise men bring to a king? Psalm 72.10 says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. They fell down. They worshipped him. More important than the gifts is the fact that they worshipped Jesus. These pagan magi, these wise men, did they understand the divine nature of Jesus? 
We don't know. But their worship of the Christ was appropriate. And if you think about it, it must have been a curious sight to see these impressive dignitaries in their finest presenting gifts of significant wealth bowing down before a young child and worshiping. Think about how amazing that moment is. We're witness to strangers, Gentiles, sending emissary to the king of kings and bowing down to worship him. That's just cool. <laughs> we need to stop thinking of this as some sort of glorified baby shower. God is calling strangers to come and worship the king of kings. To recognize and proclaim the Messiah who's come to save man from his sin and establish his kingdom forever. That's what's going on. That's who they're honoring. That is this tremendous story that starts with now after Jesus was born. This is an amazing moment in history. And these wise men are there to witness that, to bear testimony of that, and to worship God. So we see three different responses to Jesus. And we could say people pretty much respond in one of these three ways. Herod displayed an open hatred and hostility towards Jesus. If you read ahead, he wants to kill him. The chief priests and the scribes were indifferent. They retained their religious respectability, their religious knowledge, but they never applied it. They were indifferent in their heart to the Messiah calling them. The wise men, however, sought out Jesus and they worshiped him. And there was a cost involved in doing that to them. So we can learn from these strangers. They weren't satisfied with looking at the star and admiring it. They set out to do something and they followed it. They persevered in their search. They followed after the star. They weren't discouraged in their search by the clergy and the religious leaders that were dismissive. They rejoiced at the star and what and who it represented. They arrived at their destination. They entered in. When they entered in, they worshiped. They sensed an urgency to worship him now and not wait until later. When they worshiped, it was to give something. It was not an empty-handed adoration. Finally, in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they are divinely warned in a dream, kind of miraculous, but if they're from Babylon, they know the story of Nebuchadnezzar, they know all about dreams. They shouldn't return to Herod. They departed and they went another way. So their worship also manifested in obedience. They came, they worship, and God says, okay, now do something. Okay, we will. We're going to avoid Herod. We see a pattern. Those who look for Jesus will see him. 
Those who truly see him will worship him, and those who worship him will consecrate their substance to him. Again, that's Spurgeon. I like Spurgeon. But there is this, that process. We look for him. We see him. Once we truly see him, we worship him. And when we worship him, we consecrate ourselves to our Lord. Let's close. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. As we celebrate the birth of Jesus, your son, our savior, our king, let us remember to worship our great king of kings. In Jesus' name, amen.